The Question Lane. Solving problems through the process of questions and answers. The Question Lane is a podcast where the goal is to solve problems through the process of questions and answers. Today's guest is a former litigator and currently serves as the executive editor at Above the Law, a news website which produces content in the area of law. He also contributes to The Nation, which is a weekly magazine covering progressive political news. As a writer and critic of the injustice in the legal system, he is often requested to appear on various TV and media platforms to offer his analysis on political and cultural topics. Today's series of questions and answers will be centered on Area 5, a.k.a. Law. Our guest, Ellie Mistal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what would you like to be referred to as, Mr. Mistal, Ellie? Ellie is fine. It's distinctive enough that people know who I am. Okay, good. We'll go with Ellie. Uh, is there anything you want us to know about you before we get started? Uh, I mean, not really. I, I You did my uh, current job pretty well. I uh, went to Harvard Law School. I worked at Debevoise and Plimpton for a couple of years. Um, I am not barred. I am no longer barred. I am not. I am. That life is over for me. I'm not an actual lawyer anymore. I just play one on TV. For those who are unfamiliar with you, are you a black, a non-white black male? Yes, yes, yes. I identify as a, a him he. Um, I'm an African American male. My uh, my father was from Haiti and, and immigrated here when he was 18 to Queens, um, as many Haitians do. Um, and my mother, uh, she we can take my mom uh, all the way back to um, a plantation owner, uh, the Pittman Farm, uh, which was which was uh, liberated um, when Sherman was making his march to the sea. They don't keep records much further back than that. Mm. Mm. So as a black male, what influenced you to become a lawyer and eventually leave the profession to focus on writing and critiquing a system? Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of people who kind of, you know, they're, they're in college. I went to Harvard College, and, and I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. I was interested in politics. Um, my father is a former local politician, um, and law school is kind of the next, obvious thing to do um, after you get your college degree, if you're, especially if you're still interested in politics, that legal training um, comes in handy um, when you have to think about legislation and that kind of stuff. Um, once you're in law school, what I learned is that it costs a lot of money. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I grad- as I was looking ahead, I was gradu- going to graduate with a ton of debt. Um, and these uh, large uh, Wall Street law firms kind of come calling, and they're offering you – I mean, my first job out of, out of school, I was making more per year than either of my parents had ever made per year. Um, you know, as, as so many uh, uh, black people uh, have seen when they go to law school, so many sacrifices have to be made by your family um, to kind of put you in the position uh, to go to law school, especially a particularly good law school. Um, and I kind of felt like I owed it to them to try to make that much money and like it. Um, I did not like it. It was not for me. Um, I did not like uh, doing corporate defense. Um, and, you know, there was a point where, you know, two years in, I was kind of I was working on a case. I don't want to name the client, but it was an oil client um, who was doing horrible things um, in an African country, uh, and we were defending them um, uh, from the the government of this country. And I just like I was at my desk, and I was like, you know. 
The ancestors did not sacrifice so I could sit here and help this oil company. <laughs> that was not what, that, what the point was. Um, and I literally, I quit like less than a month later. Uh, so, it sounds, so it sounds like your moral compass kind of guided you away from being in that type of environment where you would be defending people who are doing things that you perceive to be immoral. Yes, yes. That's, that's, a, that's an accurate way of putting it. I, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I didn't, I thought I had more to offer than, than that. Okay, so as a, as a former lawyer and a writer, I'm pretty sure you have a great appreciation for words and what they mean, especially within the context of talking about law. So when you think about justice, as you wrote about in your piece that we're going to discuss today, what do you mean when you use the word justice? Um, I think I use the word justice um, in a very kind of um, moral sense as opposed to a legal sense, which is a little bit weird for a legal writer. Um, when I'm talking about justice, I'm talking about fairness, right? I'm talking about um, correctness, you know, moral kind of correctness. Um, from a legal perspective, justice is process, right? Like that's, that's kind of what you're trained to, to think about it, right? So it's not so much, from a legal perspective, justice is not so much about the outcome, but about whether or not the process that led to the outcome was fair and right and, you know, equal and all those kinds of things. And I do think about justice in terms of that as well, especially when we talk about police officers. Um, but when, when, I, when I use the word justice, when I look, use the word, you know, social justice, um, what I'm thinking about is the ultimately fair and right and correct outcome um, as opposed to just the process. Uh, there's a definition of justice by an author by the name of Neely Fuller Jr. who has a two-part definition for justice. just want to see what you have to say about this and if it's accurate. So the first part is guaranteeing that no person is mistreated, and then the second part is guaranteeing that the people who need the most help get the most constructive help. So what do you think about that definition? Is it accurate? I mean, from a, uh, from a kind of sociological point of view, sure, um, especially, and I think the first part of it does work with the legal framework. Um, the second one, the second part of it, that's more of a, I, I, that's more of an Aristotelian uh, version of justice, um, um, making, kind of making sure that those who, who might be crushed are, are, are not crushed or have a fair shake. And while kind of philosophically, I think that's great, um, I don't know that that has a lot of application um, to legal concepts. Um, and I think even more broadly, I don't know that that has, you know, much as I love me some Aristotle, um, I don't know that has a lot of concept, uh, a lot of relevance in kind of the political context um, where you're, 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 again, a little bit more focused on process than on outcome. So, you know, with, with the word justice, what I was mainly getting at with that definition is you want to be able to accurately identify who needs the most help, and then you want to compensate by offering those people the most constructive help, not necessarily handouts, but what would be a constructive way to help them get back on track. So, you know, that's the mind frame where I come from when I use mm -hmm. the word justice. Um, I noticed that just that justice, that the word, the phrase justice system was used to describe the U.S. court system in your uh, article. Was that correct? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the word system was not conjoined with justice. Uh, in some cases, you know, I found nine cases where the word system was used. 
what exactly do you mean when you use the word system? Well, all these philosophical concerns about justice aside, right, we have a criminal justice system. Now, when we say criminal justice, um, what we mean by that is, is, is literally just kind of law and like, you know, an episode of law and order. We got the cops, we got the prosecutors, we have the courts, we have an entire system in place that's designed or supposed to be designed um, to dole out answers to dole out right and wrong, right? So it's supposed to dole out punishment. It's supposed to uh, protect victims or, or give victims some sense of fairness or closure um, if they've been a victim of a crime. Um, it's supposed to give suspects various rights um, that have been codified by the Constitution and by the Supreme Court. Um, and so it's, it's an entire kind of complex of factors. And so when I talk about the system, the criminal justice system, um, I'm talking about that entire kind of tapestry of inputs that, that spits out an outcome of you go to jail, you get free, you owe money, um, you are owed money. Mm, okay, so as I was reading your article, I thought about words like racism or white supremacy. And as I thought about those words and I replaced those words with system, I found that they made logical sense in most, if not all, cases. Do you think that would be uh, a word that would be more accurate when you talk about the quote-unquote system? Oh, yes. I, I absolutely think that. That I think uh, I've written about how the criminal justice system is, unfortunately in this country in many ways, a part of our system of white supremacy. It's, it's almost, you know, in a lot of ways, the cops in particular are an enforcement arm, an enforcement wing of white supremacy. Um, the article that you're, we're, we're talking about, I wrote that a little uh, some time ago, and I think that in, in my development, in my kind of understanding of the issues and, 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 and uh, just also confidence as a writer, um, I now use the term white supremacy more than I did at the time that I wrote that article. Um, I like to, you know, my friends have noted that Donald Trump's election has radicalized me um, in a bit and, and made me more willing, <laughs> <laughs> right, um, and made me kind of more willing to call a thing a thing. Um, and so I think that if I had written that article today, kind of post-Trump, I also probably would have substituted the word uh, I also probably would have substituted the phrase white supremacy um, in some of my uses of the word uh, criminal justice system. I believe that they are if – I don't believe that they are the same, but I believe that they are instricably linked into how we prosecute criminal justice. Uh, what is your definition for the word racism or white supremacy? Yeah, so racism is just the belief that you – know something about somebody else based on the color of their skin, based on their phenotype, which is dumb, which is one of the dumbest ideas ever to walk across this planet. You know nothing about an individual person based on their physical phenotype, right? You don't know, you don't know my race based on my phenotype. You know, I was telling you a little bit about my family history, and I told you, like, that I've got half my half my, my father's from Haiti. My mom can go all the way back to slavery days, right, on her side of the family. But I didn't tell you that my 
my her, you know, my mom's father. So my mom's mother is the one that goes all the way back to to the Pittman farm, right? My mom's father is from Beijing. My, um, my father from Haiti has, you know, Arabian uh, ancestry, um, if you go far back enough. My wife is from Zimbabwe, and she looks black, right? She's a black Zimbabwean. Her mom is half Indian, half Scottish, you know? So my kids, which will look black to any cop on the street, um, are actually, you know, part Chinese, part Scottish, part Indian, part Haitian, and part American slave, and part African. So... The, the concept that you know anything about the genetic abilities of my children based on the color of their skin is just stupid and definitionally racist. White supremacy is a little bit different, right? Now, white, <laughs> and white supremacy is the structure that allows or, or, or encourages white people to unequally share power with the non-whites that they are living with, right? White supremacy is the power structure that basically allows racism to metastasize, not in the, you know, I bet that dude can jump, but in that I'm not going to give that dude a job. Like, that, that's, the, that's the function of white supremacy in the society. And it's a little bit, you know, put like this. It's the Avenue Q thing, right? Most people are a little bit racist, right? There's, there's some, somewhere genetically the way that we, like, recognize friend or foe leads a bit to this. Um, but, you know, racism is kind of a part of the human condition. White supremacy ain't no reason for that to be so. Like, that's, that's just white people so used to power and, and, and being unwilling to share it. So, like... There are a lot of racists out there, but not every racist is a white supremacist, and it's the white supremacists that are the kind of political and social problem in this country, even more so than just your average run-of-the-mill, you know, racist dude. So can non-white people be racist? Absolutely. Um, Non-white people, and and we see a lot that non-white people are racist, to other, you know, disadvantaged races. You know, there's a lot of racism, for instance, in the black community. There's a lot of racism against immigrants, right? There's a lot of racism against, you know, uh, Mexicans or Guatemalans who are trying to come into this country. Within the black community, like I said, I, I, my, I have ancestry from Haiti. There are a whole lot of people from the islands. There are a whole lot of people um, from the continent of Africa who come to this country and are racist against African Americans because they hear, you know, if you're sitting in, you know, my, my wife's from Zimbabwe. If you're sitting there in Zimbabwe and you hear these reports on the BBC or whatever and CNN about how black people are in America, you hear the same kind of media bull crap that you know, white people hear. And so you might come to this country thinking similarly that black people in this country are lazy or shiftless or whatever. Right? There's a whole thing in the Caribbean about how, you know, why didn't black people revolt against slavery? We did. I mean, it's, it's, I don't agree with these these thoughts, these, 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 these are media, these, this is white supremacy kind of infecting itself into global media. But yeah, there are lots of black people who are racist towards other kinds of black people, right? There are lots of black people who are racist towards brown people. There are lots of brown people who are racist towards, towards black people. There are lots of Asian people who are racist towards black people and brown people, right? Um, the, 
anybody can kind of be racist. Um, what you can't be if you're not white is a white supremacist, right? That, that's, that's where it breaks down. Like I might, you know, and I don't, but I might have, you know, views, racist views about the true nature of uh, the Native American, right? Um, but I, ha- I ain't got no power to impose those racist views on the political opportunity and the social well-being of the Native American population in this country. I have no ability to do that. I have no media – there's no media thing that I can do that can negatively impact the outcomes of Native Americans, right? So if I was racist to Native Americans – and again, I emphasize I am not – but if I was, I could still not be a, a supremacist over Native Americans because I ain't got the power. The people with the power in this country and the people with this power globally are white people. And so that is why white supremacy is, is a thing that is kind of uh, – is, is inextricably linked to, white, linked to whiteness in a way that racism is not. Mm. You said a, a very important word, power. That was the word I was looking for. So when I think of racism and white supremacy, uh, I use those words as synonyms, and the definition I have is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in a known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think that that's the dominant system of racism, and do you think that system is I mean that definition is accurate? I think that definition is largely accurate for white supremacy. Again, I, I think racism is, is less uh, – um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think racism is less thought through, right? And, and maybe that's another way to, that I distinguish between these two concepts, right? Um, r- racism is kind of re- reactionary, right? Like, oh, I'm going to cross the street. Oh, what's going on here? Um, white supremacy is thought through. White supremacy is – is advanced through policies and planning and you know uh, uh, industrialization, right? Like there, there are lots of there are lots of things that have to go in to. I mean, think of you know Trevor Noah has, from the Daily Show has explained this so well. But when you think of apartheid South Africa, when you think of the the kinds of things that they that a small minority white population had to think through and do to get a large uh, majority of a black population to suffer under their yoke and not kind of just random just start killing them in the streets right just when you think about all the things that had to happen there like that's a lot of thought that's a lot of planning that's that's thought and planning and 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 impetus that goes beyond mere like i don't like black people right like and you know they're my neighbor might not like black people right but he he's not gonna come to my house and put a cross in my yard in my yard and burn it to intimidate me like that's that's a whole different kind of thing he just won't want his kids to play with my kids like that that's that's a little bit different so again i i i think that what you just said is 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 pretty exactly right about white supremacy but i i do think that racism is just it, it 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 functions differently than white supremacy hmm Interesting. So we're going to jump into your article now. Your article is, here's how black people could use jury nullification to break the system. And that mm-hmm. was written in uh, the Above the Law publication. 
What is jury nullification, and where in law is this action considered a right, quote-unquote? Yeah, so let's go back to the reason why we have trial by jury in the first place, right? We have trial by jury because even though we have all these systems in place, and they've been, all, they've been in place since, you know, we were England, about uh, prosecutors, investigations, judges, what have you. We have decided that it is useful, especially in the criminal context, to let a jury of your peers, to let your own community decide if what you did rises to the level of a criminal act, right? This is... A, this has been part of this legal, our common law legal system since the 1600s. Um, it is, in many historical documents, it is considered one of the biggest advances in criminal justice that has ever been made in human history, right? For most of human history, justice was doled out by a ruler or sovereign or a someone deputized with the sovereign's power, like a judge, to make yay or nay decisions based on whatever evidence he, and usually it was he, um, decided uh, was relevant and be the sole and final arbiter on a person's fate. It was an advance of human society that we, that we decided to start punting that question to a jury of your peers, to your own community. Now, why do we do that? Well, First of all, it's the, 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 the key function is that your community is in the best place to understand whether what you did was criminal or not. So let's say you're accused of stealing potatoes, right? Let's just throw something out there, right? Accused of stealing potatoes. Well, if there's a potato famine going on, now that might be technically illegal, and they might be able to prove you know, have you, have you caught your red-handed with your hand in the potato farm, right? But if there's a famine going on in your community, if there's, you know, uh, uh, if there's exigent circumstances, if, other, if this is a, a farm where, like, other people occasionally pick up potatoes and the, guy, and the farmer is just pissed off at you because maybe he knows that you and his wife were, like, whatever, um, and that's why he's prosecuting you for stealing the potato – your community is in the best position to be like, you know what, that's not a crime. Nobody needs to have their hands cut off. It's fine, right? That's what a jury is supposed to do. It's supposed to understand the law, yes, and enforce the law, yes, and apply the law, yes. But it's also, it's also supposed to apply community standards of right or wrong to alleged crimes. That's what the jury does. That's why we have it. And so when you, when you now fast forward into the modern age with the American Constitution and um, our current criminal justice system, whatever, one of the jury's rights and fundamental functions still is to apply those community standards. That's why we have trials by jury, so that a group of your peers is allowed to weigh in on whether or not what you are accused of doing, not only whether you actually did it, but whether the, the thing that you allegedly did actually rises to the level of criminal conduct or not. Mm. So having the ability to be judged by people within your own community is, is what you're saying jury nullification is exactly? Well, well, I'm saying the ability to be judged by your own community is the point of juries. Now, jury nullification is when they got you, right? You, you've 
you've committed the crime. They've proven that you've committed that you committed a crime or that you committed what you were allegedly did. And your community says, yeah, I don't care. That's not going to be a crime to us, right? Like that, within the context of our community, what that person did that I totally believe that they did, we're not going to view, we're not going to view that as a crime. We see this all the time in basically every criminal defense, every, now, um, every defense that we have now that is a defense towards uh, murder or a mitigating factor um, for murder or homicide, start off as jury nullification. If you think of something like a crime of passion, Right, that's uh, you, you walked in and your wife was screwing that guy and you shot them both, right? In our current legal system, we have, we understand that given various factors might be a crime of passion and as opposed to a murder, we call it manslaughter, we give you a lighter sentence. Be clear, I mean, you murder two people, you kill two people, you're still going to jail. But, you know, maybe you're going to jail for 15 years as opposed to 25, right? Because we understand, oh my God, you were freaked out, People having sex, ah, bang, 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 you shoot them, right? That was not the first crime of passion defense was not a law. It wasn't like Congress sat around and like, you know what? We need to protect jilted lovers. That's not how it happened. What happened was that this guy killed somebody outside of the White House, by the way, right? Just, you know, he found out that his wife was cheating with this man. He went and found the man. The man was walking outside the White House. He shot him in the face, killed him was prosecuted for the crime, claimed that it was this crime of passion, and the jury was like, yeah, makes sense to me. And they let him off. That is jury nullification. That's one of the most obvious instances of jury nullification in this country. It's the, that man's community said, you, it, this guy shooting his wife's lover, that's not a crime within our community. It now has been later codified and legalized and whatever, um, so that it's kind of a more official defense. But in the first instance, that was jury nullification, and that is the power that juries have in every county, in every part of this country, that they can look at a crime, understand that a crime has actually been committed, yet still say that for whatever reason, they will refuse to convict because they don't believe that what that person did should be codified as a crime. To get to the article, you see this all the time with cop shootings. We see all the goddamn time cops who are being prosecuted for murdering black people in the streets. The prosecution has proved that they murdered this black person in the street. The prosecution has proved that the black person was unarmed. And the jury says, nah, we don't think murdering black people is actually a crime. Go away, Mr. Cop. That is jury nullification. That's not, the, you know, the, the officer that shot Walter Scott. Walter Scott was the black man in um, the Carolinas, I forget which one, who was running away from the police, and the police officer shot him in the back, and then planted Michael Slager. Michael Slager shot him in the back. He was initially, he got off of his state criminal trial, because even though they had the, mother, they had the man on video, the jury said, that officer, it is not a crime to shoot a fleeing black man in our state because that's just how racist we are. That was an example of jury nullification. So community discretion is, is, a, is, a, is a, a real slim way of putting that together. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's, that's, again, community discretion is the point of why we have juries in the first place. Mm, understood, understood. Uh, so in the first... Within the first couple of sentences, you said uh, African-Americans live in a world where the police can murder us and get away with it 
Walter Scott, as we've just spoken about, proved that for anybody who still had a lingering doubt, there is no justice for black people, and yet violently revolting against the system will get us nowhere. Um, just to be clear, I'm not advocating for violence, but um, how did you come to that conclusion that it will get us nowhere? Yeah, so I do not believe in violent overthrow of the government because it has never worked. It has never worked. There has been there. There. Well, I sorry. I am from Haiti. It did work once. But yeah, I was, I was just gonna. I was just gonna call eighteen oh four a revolutionary war in the United States. There's a lot of. There's a lot of different. Uh, you know, invading Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a lot of different examples. But I'm I'm interested to hear what you have to say. The the African American experience is one where it and, and the general post colonial experience, with a couple of exceptions, in fairness, um, have shown that the best way to overthrow an occupying force is through peaceful protest. Right, like that was the lesson of Doc, Dr. King. And you know, to be clear, I Doc, as, as Dr. King religiously pointed out, peaceful protest is not obedient protest, right? Like, you're supposed to be making people uncomfortable. You're supposed to be civilly disobeying it. You're not supposed to be following the law. It's just that you're not being violent while you're not following the law, right? That's what worked for King. That's what, work, that's what worked for Gandhi. That's what works. That's what worked for Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, people forget, the ANC, the African National Congress, back in the day, they were some trash can bomb land people right like they were they they were they were resisting the white occupation of south africa in some quite violent ways it didn't work it resulted in crackdowns um it was only when mandela adopted the 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 peaceful aspect of his dedicated and unyielding resistance that he finally started to turn, that South Africa finally started to turn public opinion against their white oppressors. So the reason why I'm for nonviolence in the first instance is that it's just historically speaking more effective than violent protest. So before we get in any of the moral aspects of nonviolence, any of the religious aspects of nonviolence, nonviolence also is the thing that works more often than not. So that's how I that's how I start with the, you know, and and you see this today, I mean like the the people, you know, throwing water on the cops in my I live in New York in my city. Like I get it. I get it. But like how is that actually helping, right? You're making the cops not look good but look almost sympathetic. Every cop that doesn't shoot the person who threw water on them looks almost sympathetic, which is not at all how cops should be, how we should be looking at cops at this point. And quite frankly, if the cop did turn around and shoot somebody who threw water on them, a lot of people, a lot of white people at least, would be like, oh, that cop was completely justified for murdering a person because they got wet. Like, the, so, so you're not actually like, when you throw water on a cop, you're not actually moving the ball forward. Um, in terms of getting real criminal justice reform and a real address to police brutality. If you could instead bring a million people to the precinct and have a peaceful visual against you know, the death of people like Eric Garner, that might move the needle. But it takes a lot more. It takes a lot more effort, and it takes a lot more organization um, to get that kind of stuff done. Um, but that's the, that's where we should be going. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with your sentiment about not pouring water on cops, you know, to make them seem sympathetic. And also, I'm not really too sure about the voting aspect, but your suggestion about using jury nullification as a way to kind of combat the system, I think is a very constructive way that, um, you know, doesn't take a lot of time and effort on our part, meaning non-white people, to actually input this type of uh, behavior into place and really start to see some changes. Um, there was a, a so portion the, of your the theory here. So just to just to back up for a second, the theory behind my jury nullification thing is that one of the ways to change the system is to break the system, right? To 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 throw a wrench into it so it backs up on itself. I will use a quote from a not very good movie, but one that I have watched many times, um, Devil's Advocate, where Al Pacino playing the devil says that the way to the way to destroy heaven is to get acquittal after acquittal after acquittal until the stink rises so high it reaches all the way up to heaven. Like, that's basically my idea here. The system cannot proceed. The criminal justice system as we have it now cannot proceed if black people and brown people are simply unwilling, unwilling to play ball. You can't do a jury of your peers system if black people and brown people will not lend their voice to such a system. So at the point where black people and brown people start voting for, because remember, it takes, it takes a unanimous jury to convict somebody. At the point where black people and brown people just refuse to convict people, just acquittal, 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 at some point the system will have to react because they won't be able to get any convictions. Truly violent and dangerous people will go free. Truly bad people will go free. It will affect all of us. It will affect white people as well as black people. And at some point, the system will have to say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that everybody who is involved in this community feels like they have a fair shot at getting justice in this system? Mm. Uh, so a portion of the article you wrote, uh, black people lucky enough to get on a jury to use that power to acquit any person charged with a crime against a white man or white male institutions. It's not about the race of the defendant, but if the alleged victim is a white guy or his bank or his position or his authority, we could just acquit. So within that context, do you think that uh, the focus should be on uh, – just white men only, or what role do you think white women play within a system of uh, acquitting uh, cops and different people who kill black people? Yeah, so here's where this article got me into a little bit of trouble because Breitbart misconstrued it and uh, blah, blah, blah. I do not care about the race of the defendant, right? Like, the, that, that means nothing to me. Uh, people are, there are white people who are criminals. There are black people who are criminals. I do not care about their race. The thing that I perceive happening with cops getting off is that the reason why the cop gets off is not because the cop is white or black. Sometimes black people shoot, black cops shoot black people too, right? It's not because the cop is white or black. It is because the victim of their murder is black. That's why the cops get off. You'll see it. When the cops shoot a white lady, which they do sometimes, they get charged, they get convicted, they go to jail. When a cop chokes the, chokes the life out of a black man in broad daylight, he does not get charged, he does not get convicted, he does not go to jail. That difference is not the race of the cop, that difference is the race of the victim. 
So that's why I, I turn it around and look at the victims of these alleged crimes. I believe strongly that if you could not get a conviction for some dude, white, black, brown, Latino, whatever, for stealing money from a bank, the bank would notice that. The bank would say, oh, why is that happening? Right? So, like, people, are, people who read the article kind of super focused on the criminal aspect. Dude, the whole civil system is also based on a jury system. And if you can't, if these rich corporations cannot get civil judgments in their favor for breach of contract, for embezzlement, for, you know, tort liability, for all of these kind of corporate crimes, the powerful interests in this country would take notice right quick. So that's why I'm so, – so well before we get into white black man or, or, or white black woman, I go into white institution. If the victim of the crime is the white institution and you do not use the jury system to protect the white institution, the white institution will notice that and might start the process of agitating for change, A. B, look, I think that – Racism is a terrible uh, cancer on our society, but so is sexism, right? Like sexism should not ever should not ever be taken lightly. Sexism should not ever be 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 understood as anything less dangerous than it is. Um, and it is because of that that I'm a little bit more focused on whether or not the victim is a white man than whether or not the victim is a white woman because there are, there are way too many women, white, black, brown, whatever, um, who are the victim of crime, the victim of sexual crimes, um, who have struggled so long and so hard to get their day in court that um, – it felt to me, it still feels to me, that kind of punishing them um, when they finally are, are, when they are fighting their own battle against the sexism of this nation, um, to make a point about the racism of this nation, that doesn't, that, 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 that's, a, that's an apples to oranges kind of thing, right? Like you're not, you're not advancing things um, by, by punishing women when they have a whole different kind of battle that they are trying to fight. Mm, mm. So you talked about allies in the article as well, white allies. They could join if they wanted to uh, be able to nullify the law in cases where they thought that it should be applicable. How do I go about identifying if a white person, male or female, is an ally to join in something like this? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I I. I, 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 I I don't know how to reliably identify white allies anymore. Um, for me, at this point, it has become an entirely personal um, decision-making process whereby – so another, here's another legal concept that I use. Um, it's called burden shifting, right, um, in, in the criminal justice system. Uh, <laughs> the burden is on the prosecution – to show that a person did the crime, right? You are innocent until proven guilty. The state or the prosecution has the burden of proof as we understand it. 
However, in certain cases, in certain situations, whatever, um, we engage legally in what we call burden shifting, that the prosecution has made enough of a facially obvious case that the burden now shifts to the defendants to the defendants to prove whatever it is. It usually happens in cases of affirmative defense, like if I claim self-defense, the prosecution has to just show that I killed them, and then the burden shifts to me as the defendant to say, oh, I was actually acting in self-defense. That's a very common burden shifting that happens in a lot of cases, right? For me personally, I have engaged, especially post-Trump, in burden shifting with white allies. Before Trump, and you know, I would kind of walk into a situation with a new white person, assuming that they were decent, right? Assuming that they were a decent human, assuming that they wanted to do the right thing, assuming that they were not like a racist jerk face, right? The burden, <laughs> the burden was on me to like to they to show that they were racist. Like they would have to do something. I would have to have evidence that they were malcontents um, before I felt like, oh, well, that person is a racist, right? Now, I'm sorry, the burden has damn shifted. Trump won this election with a majority of the white vote, an overwhelming majority of the white male vote, and a majority, bare though it may have been, of white women. The burden is now on them. If, if you're a new white person, I don't know you, the burden is on you to show me that you're not racist because my standing, my starting position is that you're probably goddamn racist because a majority of you are, right? You now have the burden to show me that you're not racist. That's, that's how I look at white allies now. Like the, it's no longer on me to tell them what to do. It's on them to show to me what they are willing to do. So just to be clear, it's, you're, you're suggesting that it's, logical for non-white people to be suspicious of white people as it relates to them potentially being racist? Absolutely. Absolutely. People are like, oh, well, then isn't it logical for white people to be afraid of black people for committing crime? No, it's not. It's not even the same goddamn thing. I'm talking about a majority of white people. A majority of black people don't commit crime. A majority of black people don't play basketball. I, you, you're, you, white people make these assumptions and, and prejudices and stereotypes about black people based on what a bare minority of our community does. But when I turn around them, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm making this judgment on what a large majority of your community does. Oh, now I'm the one being, being racist. No, screw that. If you are a white person in the Trump era, you have to show me that you are not racist. Oh, okay. Uh, you said that you wanted to create chaos in the prosecutor's office. Uh, can you talk about some of the tactics that prosecutors use by striking black jurors from jury pools or simply not having a, quote, diverse jury? Yeah, so there's a whole history of... There's a whole literature in history about this, and the, kind of the way to do, do it most quickly is that when you are selecting a jury, the, both, um, both uh, the prosecution and the defense are allowed to make what's called preemptory challenges. 
um, to strike jurors from the potential jury pool. And they don't really have to give a reason, right? So one of the reasons why, like, I'm never going to be on a jury is that I have a law degree, and most lawyers don't want people with law degrees on their juries, right? We know too much. We understand too much about the process. They can't, like, weave their narratives around us if we actually also know the law. Um, so a lot of times lawyers will get preemptively struck from juries. You've, it's very rare to see a jury with lawyers on it unless the case is really highly technical um, and kind of a complicated financial crime, in which case that legal training helps you keep up. Now, there is a Supreme Court decision, there is a rule that you can strike a juror for any reason or no reason at all unless, that juror, unless the reason why you're striking them is because of race, right? So you can say, I'm not going to have Ellie because he's a lawyer. You can say, I'm not going to have Ellie because he's fat. But you can't say, I'm not going to have Ellie on my jury because he's black. Right? That's a great rule. And when it came down, Thurgood Marshall disagreed with the decision because he said, are you freaking kidding me? All they're going to do is make up a different reason. They're going to make up, they're going to strike jurors because they're black. They're just going to make up a different reason for it. I don't like his hair, for instance. He, um, he has written online about how he doesn't, he doesn't like cops, for instance, right? There are all these kinds of different things that a prosecutor can do to strike a black juror without saying it's because the juror is black, and that is what we see. So prosecutors use all of these tricks to make sure, especially in cases where cop violence is an issue, that no black people are on their jury. Defense lawyers can strike jurors, too, but what they can't do is defend jurors, right? If the prosecutor says, I don't want that black guy, or whatever version of lie he's using to say that, it's not like the defense attorney can say, like, no, 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 that juror has to stay. You just kind of have to move on to the next one, right? Um, so it's a huge problem. It's a huge reason. Like, how do you – I talk about this a lot. Like, white people like to think that – there are all these places in the country where there's no black people anywhere, and how could you possibly have learned anything about black people if you live in Maine or whatever? Are you freaking kidding me? There are black people all over this goddamn country. Most black people in this country still live in the goddamn South, close to where they were held, um, in, in, where they were held in bondage. You have to go out of your way in this country to avoid black and brown people. You really do. It's not easy. Maybe, you know... I have been to Maine. It is easier there. But you can't have an all-white jury in South Carolina unless you're planning on having an all-white jury, right? Unless you think about how to get yourself an all-white jury. That, that crap doesn't happen by accident. And so prosecutors use all of these tools to make themselves have all-white juries when they want an all-white jury. I appreciate you including some statistics in this article as well because you referenced uh, about a million cases being uh, seen throughout the five boroughs in New York City. And according to the 2015 Crime Court Report, about half of them went to, well, about 500 trials, without a 500 trials, about half of them resulted in convictions and half resulted in acquittals. Uh, with the majority obviously going towards people taking guilty pleas, how do we get this type of message about jury nullification out to more non-white people as something that we need to keep within our repertoire and actually apply? 
I mean, we got to talk about it more. Paul Butler, uh, who's a Georgetown law professor, black guy, he's on TV a lot. Um, he's written about jury nullification specifically in the context of drug crimes. That we just, you, if, if you want to change the laws about marijuana, every person can do it. Just refuse to convict on a drug drug crime. He talks about it all the time. I talk about this all the time. You just you have to have more people talking about it and more people who understand. And this this goes this goes so generally to problems that we have in America. You have to have people who understand better civics, right? How the system works. Just basic. Not like, you know, I don't need you to be uh, freaking uh, 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 Nancy Pelosi level understanding about how to marshal a bill through Congress, right? I just need you to have a basic understanding of the world you've been living in this entire time. Understand your basic rights. Understand the basic civics of the thing. So much of an actual jury trial involves explaining to the jurors what their actual rights are. And when cases get appealed so often, it's because those jury instructions were wrong. Like the judge will say, like, if you believe X, then you have to convict. And jurors will be like, oh, well, the judge said if I believe X, I have to convict. No, you don't. There's no judge who's who should be allowed to tell you if X, then Y. That's not how it works at all. And getting more people to understand just that basic right that they have. Getting more people to go to jury duty. It's amazing. I mean, you can go online. You can Google, how do I get out of jury du duty? And there will be pages and pages and pages of articles and respected publications telling you how to get out of jury duty. Are you freaking kidding me? If you're black, you must do jury duty. We need you to do jury duty. It's, it's your unwillingness to do jury duty that is part of what the criminal justice system is banking on. So even getting people to understand how important this civic duty is would be a start. Mm. Are there any, like, uh, organizations, civic organizations, or any type of uh, people that you would suggest uh, on a local level that people get in contact with in order to learn more about this concept? I mean, your local bar associations are always kind of on point and on the ball with this kind of stuff. You know, every, every town, every city that you're in has a local bar association. There's New York City Bar, there's the Atlanta Bar, there's the Georgia Bar. I mean, every place that you are has a local bar association, and that is staffed by lawyers who are generally there to, you know, promote good legal theories and whatever, but, you know, also they can answer some goddamn questions. Um, if your, you know, own upbringing and education and, 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 and whatever did not inform you of some of this stuff, there are, there are places like that out there, right? So that's one that I always kind of point out. Two, I mean, like, it's, it's not, you know, I always suggest that everybody should sign up for the ACLU newsletter. Just get that, just get that direct, straight hit right into your inbox every day, because that will tell you what the hell is going on um, in our criminal justice system and where the fights are and where the front lines are. Um, the ACLU newsletter is, is great, so I always tell people to sign up for that. And, you know, just, there are so, and one of the things that I learned when I went to law school, right, is, is that... There are so few African-Americans who have lawyers in their family. There are not a lot of lawyers in America to begin with. People think that they're all, you know, there ain't but 1.3, 1.4 million lawyers in the entire country. Um, so it's a small group, right? And it's extremely, overwhelmingly white. 
which means that there are very few African Americans who have a per, a lawyer or a person with legal training who they you know who comes to the cookout who they see at the game who you know comes over to watch football. Um, so those the kind of like background understanding of the legal system. Um, in our community is so much less than the background understanding of the legal system in kind of a middle-class white community. Um, and so whatever we can do to kind of <laughs> to oppose that, to start to shift that, um, to get people more educated about the law and about their rights, um, that's all super important, you know? More black I people agree. know cops. More black people know cops than they know lawyers which is really bad, actually. It should be the other way around. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this, for, this, for this reason is, is why I wanted to interview you, because uh, I became aware of Paul Butler's interview with, uh, I believe it was on 60 Minutes. I was watching a YouTube clip, and I've never heard about jury nullification until this year. And uh, I've only had uh, one time where I was... Uh, you know, asked to be on a jury, and I, I wasn't selected. But this type of this type of right is something that I don't hear talked about. And I'm a college-educated young man, and for, I, I really believe that this is something that we can use as non-white people, specifically black people, to really create some change uh, within the criminal justice system. And anything that, in terms of resources that you have about this type of concept in addition to the ACLU or uh, the local bar association I would definitely be interested in hearing about for sure last thing I, and I, I have a hard out so, so the last thing I'll mention is that if you do if you are on a jury remember that you also can tell people why you decided the way you decided and lawyers especially judges especially Look at those notes. Try to understand. I mean, the media cares when it's a high-profile case. But even when it's not high-profile, the, the system itself cares why people make the decisions they make. Because, as I've been saying, it's so, it's so random. You can make your decision based on almost anything that you want to make your decision on, right? So whatever, wherever you decide, however you come down, if you are on a jury, do take the time to write to the lawyers and the judges um, why you voted the way you voted. Because even, little, even something as small as that can start to make the system kind of take notice of what's actually happening. Remember, there's an entire multi-million dollar industry of people who are professional jury consultants, right, who are professionally um, trained to try to figure out how you're going to vote before you vote on a jury based only on your, like, you know, demographic information, race, color, creed, all that kind of crap, right, you know, income level. Um, and when you give them more information about why you did what you did, um, that gets put into their database, right? Like that gets put into their understanding of what the hell is going on in this country. So even something as small as that can be like super useful to the system. All right, Alonzo, I got to okay, uh, bounce. So, okay, thank you. Uh, if, if someone wanted to find uh, more information about you, how would they be able to look, uh, look out for you? Uh, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at L-E-N-Y-C. That's E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. Uh, my website is called AboveTheLaw.com. That's one word, Above the Law. 
Um, and, you know, I'm also on MSNBC every now and again. Perfect, perfect. Thank you for your time, and uh, we'll be in contact. Thank you, Alonzo. And, again, I'm so sorry about Friday. My, my bad. I'm glad we were able to reschedule and do this. No worries. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks for watching this video. If you enjoyed the content, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Stay up to date for more videos by clicking the bell notification icon and following our social media. For any of the people, groups, companies, or videos that were referenced in this video, don't forget to check the description and or the pinned comment section. The question lane, solving problems through the process of questions and answers.